Father in heaven, we are thankful for the privilege of being here. Lord, we can't overestimate the privilege of the freedom to come together, to believe according to our conscience, and to practice those beliefs, to study them together. Uh, Lord, we know that these freedoms would not always be held by us, and we just thank you that we have them now. We, help, we ask that you would help us to take the most advantage of them while we do. We pray for the blessing of your Holy Spirit upon what we're going to do now in this classroom. And Lord, across this campground with all of the different seminars going on, we just pray for the outpouring of your Spirit and we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Personal Ministries is the department in the local church whose goal, according to the Seventh Adventist Church Manual, is to get every single member involved in outreach missionary service in the church. Not, oh, I'm involved in the church, I do greeting. Oh, I'm involved in the church, I help with fellowship meal. That's not, that's not total member involvement. According to our denominational beliefs, according to what we believe Scripture says, I'm going to share that this morning, according to our church manual, every member should be involved in sharing their faith. And so that's the job of the personal ministries department is to help provide that training on a conference level and help equip the personal ministries leaders in the local church on that level. And so one of the reasons the conference office had invited me to do this is because um, I've been the director of the Emanuel Institute since 2009, which basically does training, evangelism training, and they wanted to bring that into a more prominent place in the conference office so that we could make that training more accessible to the field. So Pastor Cameron and I go out on a regular basis and do training in churches. And if you are interested in training in your churches, if you are in Michigan, if you're outside of Michigan, you can request. And, you know, but yeah, the brethren just usually focus on, you know, there's cost involved and all that. But for, for Michigan Church, if you go to our website, which is the michigansspm.org website, you want to write that down. Um, I'm going to reference it further this week. We put a lot of resources there. Michigan spelled out. Uh, I don't think it's case sensitive, but I'd go lowercase. I usually put it in lowercase. Michigan SSPM, Sabbath School Personal Ministries. MichiganSSPM.org. We're going to have a lot of resources there for you. A lot of the things we cover here and that kind of thing. But there's also a speaker request form. If you are training request form, if you want some training to come to your local church, and that form gets the ball rolling with us getting it on the schedule and that kind of thing, just so you're aware of that. Now, Pastor Cameron, why don't you just introduce yourself? Did I give you the mic? Oh, yes, you got it. Good. Uh, yes, my name is Cameron DeVasher, and uh, I'm the director of the Sabbath School of Personal Ministries Department. And Elder Howard, of course, is the associate director, but he's the director of the Manual Institute. And that might seem a little bit, how does that work? <laughs> the issue is that the Sabbath School of Personal Ministries Department has, uh, is it on? Yeah, it's on. It's um, on, but I'm going to give you a little more. I think I'm going to see how that works. Talk about the Sabbath School First Ministry Department. Well, just take the First Ministry part. That same church manual that outlines how the local church, the First Ministry's leader, is responsible to recruit, to train, and deploy every member of the church, young and old, in some form of soul-winning missionary outreach activity. That same thinking was brought into the conference office to say, you know, if this is supposed to be happening in every local church, maybe the conference should have that same thing. We have a ministerial department who works with all the ministers, right? And usually that's how information and training and resources gets conveyed to the people in the church is through their ministerial representatives, okay? And praise the Lord. We, of course, still have a ministerial department, and they have their associates, and they work with, like, for instance, ordination service the other day that... They train and equip and uh, 
move around and recruit and all the different things that have to do with the minister side. But we have noticed, and I don't want to get off on this soapbox too much, but there is a bit of, um, some of you may have heard my diatribe about pastor dependency. In the Seventh-day Adventist church, a lot of our church members are becoming very, very dependent on the pastor for everything. They want the pastor to do all the administration, all the preaching, all the leading out of meetings. They want him to do all the soul winning and Bible studies and public evangelism, raise funds, and keep the tithe dollars coming in and help us with... And the members see their role more and more declining to a position of, my job is to pray for and financially support the work that the paid ministers are doing. When the reality is, the purpose of the pastor is to train and equip the members so that every one of us is doing work for the cause of God. That's the goal. And so with that mindset, the Michigan Conference Brethren said, you know what, we need to make that more uh, clear in our responsibilities in the conference office. So instead of, it's not like removing Mark and I from the pastoral field, now we're just up in some conference office somewhere. They said, no, your purpose is to get out there and actually make happen the things that we know are supposed to happen according to the Bible, the Spirit of Prophecy, and our voted documents in the church manual and whatnot. So, the Sabbath School and Personal Ministry Department, I'm very, very happy to be part of because we have an exclusive focus on, or at least primary focus, on the training and equipping of the lay people in the Michigan Conference to partner with their ministerial brothers, right, so that all of us can be doing effective soul-winning work for God. So uh, there are 26,000 members in the Michigan Conference, plus over 26,000, and there's a, about 180 or so churches and companies in the Michigan Conference, about 120 so pastors. So there's a whole team here that we're trying to get to, and so the conference brought especially Mark in with the Emanuel Institute and that kind of thing so that it couldn't, it's not just an occasional one-off thing you might hear about in Emanuel Institute and go to it. We're trying to make this a more central focus of the entire conference work is the training and equipping and sending out of lay people for their work and cooperating with the ministers for the work of the gospel and by God's grace to finish the work. Uh, sister, you have a common question? Yeah, if y'all come to our church, is there a cost? No. No, well, yeah, it would, if you go... Yes, up, there is a cost. Yeah. <laughs> people got to show up. Yeah. No, no, we've talked about it because in all seriousness, there's only so many, like, say, weekends in a year or so many weeks we can devote to that. And we don't want to come to a place if, there, if one person from the church says, oh, we'd love to have that, and you're just speaking for yourself, and then all of a sudden you, we all go there, and all of a sudden four people... Uh, uh, Amen, Ron. Wanna, we want to make sure that if we come to a place, Bless you. it's going to be a blessing for everybody. We want to make sure that the church shows up. I'd love, to, I'd love to see the church board say, yeah, we want this. We're going to put it on our calendar. We're going to make sure all our members are there. We're going to talk about a prayer meeting and Sabbath school. We're going to make it a thing, right? Because we, we don't... We don't all right, I'll take a little more time on this. I'm done. Yeah, you got your time. You'll, okay. be, you'll have your time. Okay, I'll stop. But anyway. That, that was an introduction to you, not your sermon. And I said introduction. I just had to tell them who you I, are. I, they don't care about me. By the way, I grew up in Tennessee, blah, blah, blah. Nobody cares. <laughs> what they care about is the thing they came for. All right. Actually, there's some pretty exciting stories about that growing up in Tennessee, but he can but share those later. have time to get into, praise the Lord. <laughs> now, I'm going to tell you, though, that Pastor Cameron will be teaching in here along with myself, my brother Jim. Uh, some of you remember my brother Jim. Um, I apologize, but uh, no, I love my brother Jim. But my brother Jim works for the General Conference. He'll be here this week, so he's going to share a little bit. He works, and ironically, he's in the same position for the General Conference that I am for the Michigan Conference. So Cameron's the director of our department. I'm the associate 
of the Sabbath School and Personal Ministries Department. My brother Jim is the associate of the Sabbath School and Personal Ministries Department of the General Conference. Uh, he's going to be here this week. Wes Peppers is going to help us out this week as well. Uh, Cameron is going to be heading up some other seminars um, that oh, start yeah. tomorrow. By the way. You can't do that. You're not drawing from my... I'm just, from no, my, no, no, no. It's not competing. If you want your Sabbath school to be alive, you've got to come to the Sabbath school live seminar. And that does not compete with the Manual Institute. And I'm not going to plug the other personal ministry stuff, even though some really good stuff there too. But no, we, no manual. But in the mornings, go to the Sabbath school live seminar. And that's it. Okay. Yeah, we, we have a lot of different... So he'll, he'll pop out sometimes for seminars and then be popping in and we'll do... Anyway. So I want to I wanted now t- turn your attention to our schedule. And um, now there's a little... Does that sound okay? It sounds a little ringy to me now. I think it's bouncing off of this is what's happening. I just want to make sure the sound is okay. I turned it up a little bit. And I don't... Okay. If, it's, if, it, if it gets bad, you need to let me know because I can't tell as much from where you're sitting. Um... So if you look at the schedule, we're starting out with Evangelism 101 after we do this introduction. And you've got the, the schedule all week from 1045 to 12. We're going to have a session in here. And then after lunch, starting at 215, the 215 and 330 seminar slots, we're going to be in here. Now, uh, you see the on today's, for example, and today is not... Today, there's usually not, Sundays are not usually not a lot of seminars that are going on at camp meeting. But through the rest of the week, starting tomorrow, you have seminars going on. But the two, you've got basically the grow thing this afternoon is part one and part, we'll do a part one and part two. We'll break in between there. And so there may be some of you who come in for one part of it and not the other part of it. Um, just so that you understand that we're working within those seminar tracks. So for example, if you look on the far left from 215 to 315, then there's a 15-minute break before we start 3.30 to 4.30. Uh, so that if people are coming from another seminar, they can come and get that particular uh, session. You're going to be in a part two on Sunday and Monday, uh, but you see how that, that works a little bit. Um, some of these things, if you have been to an evangelism training, an Emmanuel training or another one, some of these, there will be similarities. I will tell you this. I rarely present the same thing the same way twice, so you really haven't heard it before. <laughs> uh, one of the challenges is you have to understand that when we started Emanuel Institute, it was a 14-week program, and we took three entire weeks of six to seven-hour days to present now what we're trying to do in five days and three hours a day. So it's always a matter of which part are we going to emphasize this time? And because of that, there's always different things. Besides the fact that I know when people come to camp meeting, you don't want to have the same thing every time. And so we've changed that up. The first year we did in a camp meeting seminar, we did a solid witnessing training. We just focused on personal witnessing, you know, how to find interest, how to, uh, uh, share, your, how to share your testimony, how to give Bible studies. The next year we did our Bible boot camp where we just went through Bible doctrines and how to give studies on the different doctrines, which, you know, we'll probably revisit that, but we'll cycle through. Last year we teamed up with Amazing Facts and it ended up being an Amazing Facts training more than an Emmanuel training. We kind of supplemented with it afterwards. This year what we're going to do, I'll talk about what we're going to do in just a minute after we, and I may as well talk about it now as we're going over the schedule. So as Cameron and I, as Cameron highlighted, we got into the conference office, and in fact, one of the things that, uh, they they sat us both down, you have to understand that prior to, did Wes have Sabbath school, or was that a new thing with you? So when Cameron came into the conference office last, what? 
March or something? Just, just over a year. Let me I started in July. Yeah. And so you were just before just, that. I'm just about camping. And when that happened, they decided to put the Sabbath school department with personal ministries. It hadn't been the case before. Also, personal ministries did not have a, an associate. There was just the personal ministries leader. So when they brought in Cameron and then they brought was, me in. That's right. Now evangelism went to ministerial with Pastor Peppers anyway. You don't need to know all that. What you need to know is that when, they, when we got in and they sat us down, they said, this is what we really are looking for and why we're bringing Mark in and why we're doing all this. We've done a lot of trainings in this conference. The problem is when you do a training, people come to the training, they're excited, but then they go back to their dead church that doesn't want to do anything. Or you go into a church and do the training and people get excited and then it fizzles out because they run into challenges. And we've got to find a way to keep the excitement going and to keep the work going, right? Just simple task. We've got to find a way to get all the members excited about personal evangelism, going out and witnessing, giving Bible studies, all the members in your local church. If I told you to do that, you'd go home discouraged. So anyway, that's what they tasked us with. And, and so we've been taking, and I want to tell you something that uh, you'll hear me say this in, in, if you may have heard it in a different setting, but I can't tell you how much I appreciate the Michigan Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. I mean, if you're from the Michigan Conference, you have, no, you have little clue how blessed you are, many of you. Uh, I did not start working in the Michigan Conference. It's funny because I, go, I still go around speaking in different places, and, and Adventists have lost their bearings. We're like, oh, the third angel's message is not relevant and all this talk about end time stuff and beasts and it's scary and we just need to talk about Jesus and all of this. Incidentally, Jesus is the one who taught about the beasts. So, but all that aside, as I go around, there are people that are doing stuff, Adventists that are in their church and they're like, oh, we're doing all this innovative stuff in our conference. Innovative. You know what I mean by innovative, right? New, edgy, kind of like not the old fashioned stuff. Like what kind of stuff are you doing? Man, we got like we're we're trying to get more young people in our church. And so what we do is we start the morning by serving breakfast and we have coffee and donuts. And I know that coffee isn't the best thing, but it gets the people in the doors. And then, you know, we've livened up the worship service and we got, you know, we've got, you know, there are places that folks, I have not always been in the church. And, you know, it, it call me old fashioned. But it seems odd to me when I come into the church and there's smoke rolling off the stage and there's lights going on and, and they're calling it church. We didn't used to call that church. When I was in the world, we didn't call that church at all. But there's all this stuff. That, oh, we're innovative. And I just want to tell you, you're not being innovative. You're just copying what the Sunday churches that the Babylonian churches have been doing forever. And, and this, I'm getting this from ministers. We're being innovative. But when I'm here in Michigan, I'm telling you, we are doing stuff in Michigan nobody else is doing. Amen. Uh, our Grow Michigan and the emphasis there, we're, not, we're hitting this stuff in practical ways that people aren't doing. And so Cameron and I, we're looking at the field. We're looking at trying to, to how are we going to get more people active? And we began looking into, what we did is we adopted a district. Now, Michigan conferences divided up into 12 pastoral districts, okay? So you have the whole state, there are 12 districts, and within a district, for example, we chose District 6 to work with. In District 6, there are seven pastors and 17 churches, okay? And there's a district superintendent over each one of those districts. Now, we knew that if we were going to change things on the local level, 
we weren't going to be able to do it from the conference office, sitting in a chair, sitting in a desk somewhere. We had to be in the churches. We had to see what was going on in the churches. We had to be able to do on-the-ground, boots-on-the-ground training in the churches. And we knew we couldn't get around to 188 churches in the Michigan Conference and do that. And so we decided to pick, and we, we're working with our ministerial department. For, for years, we have talked about some of the things we're going to share here. Cameron touched on the idea, and you hear more about this, this idea of pastoral dependency. This is not Adventism, folks. It is not biblical. It's not early church. You don't find it in the book of Acts. You don't find it in the early Adventist movement. But we will find, if you look through history, this slow decline away from a, the biblical model to where we have a very, dare I say, Catholic model of ministry. And so as we have looked into this and we've been investigating this, uh, we said we've got to get in the churches and, and be able to evaluate and be able to uh, do that on the ground training. So we worked with the ministerial department. We, we, as we met with our ministerial director, Elder Royce Naiman, and the associate Wes Peppers, we said, guys, we've been talking about this forever. How are we going to do something different? So we said, let's get on the ground and do it. So we picked a district. We picked District 6 because it was close enough to Lansing to drive back and forth. Um, it, it, we, we, the district superintendent, Pastor Terry Nelson, he's on AV this week, but per Terry has been a conference evangelist. He has a, an experience in, in evangelism. Um, he was going to be supportive and, and uh, a strength, we thought, in what we were going to do. So we adopted District 6. And as we went into District 6, we began with a process of helping the churches to evaluate their own sense of mission, their, not just the sense, I don't want to say that, where they were in terms of really moving the mission of the church. Are they evangelistic or do they just think they're evangelistic? Um, how do they get off of, if they're not operating in the way that, that uh, is the most efficient for church growth. We looked at church growth indicators. And, and, and the, let me tell you this about our churches. How many of you are from Michigan? Okay, let me tell you about our Michigan churches. 188 churches. We have 30 churches, give or take. Um, it may be more than that, but pretty close. 30 churches that are this close to closing their doors altogether. There's just not enough there to keep them going. Um, some of those churches, I shouldn't say that, some of those churches might have enough money to pay for hospice care for the next 10 years. In other words, the church may be dead, no growth, but because they have money in the bank, we can just keep wasting that money and keep the doors open. And I, and I hate to say it that way, but that if the church isn't growing, if it's not presenting the gospel, if it's not winning souls, you've lost your mission. And, and what's happened is, and we even talked about, so we've got these 30 churches, give or take, and, and unfortunately, the trend is not like, well, once we get over this hill, things are going to get better. They're not getting better. Our churches are dying, and as a result, our schools are dying. Okay, any, any teachers here? Okay, our school teachers, our schools, and people, oh, you know, we got to get... <laughs> Sometimes we think if we just berate the saints and get more people to send the kids to school, well, that's great if you have the people, but we're losing the people. Baptism, we're going to talk about, I won't get into the, uh, the details of this. Cameron's going to touch on the details a little bit later. We're going to get into details. But we are in a crisis situation. If something does not change, not only, I mean, it's not just, listen, there are churches, I'm not just talking about churches. we got churches that have more people in them that won't close their doors. You might be in a church that is not in danger of closing its doors, but it could be just as dead, if not deader, than one of those churches that will, just because there's enough people or wealthy people that can help support and keep the bills paid. 
But our goal is not to have a church that's doors are open. <laughs> our goal is to have a church that's winning souls for Christ and, and, and preparing the way for the coming of Christ. As our Seventh-day Adventist church in 2010, what year is it, folks? In 2010, we launched this initiative of um, praying for the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the, the Revival and Reformation Initiative. You remember this? Annual Council at the end of 2010, October of 2010, said we have got to come to terms with the fact that we're not growing. And unless we have the Spirit of God poured out on the church, we're going to die. And we need to make this a priority. So it has been a priority for nine years? How long did it take the early church in the upper room? Something's, not, something's missing here. And I wish... I knew that you're supposed, I know this is where you'll be like, okay, great, and you're going to tell the answer because that's what we're going to do this week. I have some answers, but I don't have all the answers. And that's one of the things with this district thing for us, District 6 thing, is we are, as we are in this district and we are not only theorizing, but then putting things into practice. You know how that goes. Some things work and some things don't. But I'm going to tell you that from that, we're coming fresh from that. We've got very practical tools that will help you to start your church on a road to being the kind of church that can finish the work in this earth. I don't want to be here for another 10 years Amen. talking about, oh, revival and reformations. I mean, seriously, 10 years. It's not been full 10 years. So maybe we can look at that as the positive side. But what we've been doing in District 6 is, is looking at nuts and bolts of not just how you can give a Bible study, but how do we change the culture of our churches to make them more evangelistic? How do we really get every member involved? How do we get our churches to begin to function? And I'm, I'm, I, I, I don't want to dive into it just yet. But as we've been in the conference office and we go around and train in different churches, can I say I'm appalled at how some churches run? And, 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 and any kind of mystery as to why that church isn't growing is suddenly clarified in my mind. There are some churches I walk into, and it's obvious why they're not growing. And it's not because they're not giving Bible studies in time. It's because they don't, it's because they wing the worship service on Sabbath morning. People don't even know who's supposed to get up to the platform. And Seventh-day Adventists, I think, unfortunately don't realize. Now, some of your churches, if you're one of the bigger churches, they can oftentimes take care of that. Not always. I've pastored bigger churches, and I've been surprised at the Lack of organization in those churches. Like it or not, if you go to the Sunday churches, they've got it down in a lot of places. I mean, you, we, we're competing with it, like it or not, and they don't do sloppy services as a rule. They're very polished. They're very on time. They're very, and there's just, there's just all of those things are elements that are going to help us grow as churches. And there are a lot of those elements that we never look at. We're like, okay, we're going to talk about soul winning. I'm going to go get Bible studies. And then we wonder why my Bible study interest came to church once and said, I'm never going back. And it wasn't because of the sermon. It's because nobody greeted them when they came in. It's because, the, 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 it's because nobody mowed the grass for the last two weeks. It's because the church is in a shambles. It's because it smells like grandma's basement. I walked into a, particular, into a particular church, and I told the pastor, I walked into a church, now I have a, and, and, and my wife is plagued with this, but I have a sensitive nose, sensitive to mold. And, and I say that, I don't think it was that faint. But I walked into this church, and the first smell that hits me is moldy, musty. And I'm like, can't, can't somebody spring for a dehumidifier? I mean, this is God's house. 
First impression coming in, and don't think that doesn't affect people. So those are, I'm just telling you that to say the areas that we're talking about this week are not just going to teach you how to give somebody a glow trap. There are things that our churches need to evaluate to ask themselves, are we set up to win souls? And all of these little pieces fit into that. I'm just going to go further with this particular church. I walked into the church uh, through the moldy smell. I get into the church. It's a big church. It's probably, I mean, fairly good size. It's probably as big as this room. So I'm walking in the back door. I'm doing this as an illustration. So you got this church like this, and the front of the sanctuary is down where the wall is, right? And this, and I come in, and where are the church members? They're in Sabbath school. Where? They're all huddled back here in the corner, and the only lights in the whole sanctuary are over their heads because they don't want to pay extra on Sabbath morning if they don't have to. I don't know who that looks good to. I don't. But to an outsider who's coming into a church for the first time, that's freaky. That's just plain freaky. You're not going to, you're expecting, you don't go into churches. Here's a group huddled in the back corner with their class and, and it, something else about new people. I didn't ask them why. I didn't ask them why they were huddled in the back corner. I can imagine, I have heard some people say this, so I'm going to assume this. Some people do that because they say, well, when people come in, they slip in the back. And this way, they can't just slip in the back. You're right. We slip out the door. <laughs> you know, you can't do that. You've got to understand, you know a visitor's going to slip in the back, and you're like, so we're going to keep them from doing that. They're going to have to come right in among us. They won't. They won't <laughs> if you try to force that. Now, maybe that's not why the church was doing it, but I'm just telling you, folks, there are a lot of these things that we're... So we're looking at things we're going to cover this week are, are very practical things that I think will make a huge difference in your church's ability to grow and win souls. It could be that you've been trying to, we've been sending out mailers and doing this and it's not doing any good. There could be other reasons that contribute to why it's not doing any good. And let me just add this to it. It may not be any visitor ever seeing what's going on. Don't forget the Lord himself sees what's going on and he's not top, tapping anybody on the shoulder to come to your church if your church isn't ready to receive it. There's some great statements in the Spirit of Prophecy. Ellen White says, The Lord does not now work to lead many souls into the truth because of those who have uh, backslidden and those who have never been converted. And incidentally, the context of that statement is the Adventists who just haven't, haven't uh, have bucked against the health reform. So that's an interesting, that's a whole other subject. So we're going to be looking at some real nuts and bolts stuff this week. I just want you to understand that that's, that's where we're heading. We're taking this... Stuff we're working on right now in our District 6, and we're going to give you some tools that you'll be able to take home to your church. We're wanting to do what we're doing in District 6. We're trying to refine it so that we can spread it out to the whole field. We've got people already saying, hey, can we use this? Can we use that? You need to go out to all the churches. Well, we can't get into all the churches right now, but guess what? You can. And, and as we're going to look at this morning in this first session, I just want to remind us all of how it started with the Christian church. And what God's calling for us is. And don't think that you need the pastor to go in or you need some evangelist to go in. You, God can use you. You're not here by accident this morning. And this might be like, this might be where you're saying, well, I made a mistake coming in here. Because now the Lord's tapping you on the shoulder and saying, you're here because you can be a catalyst and you can make a difference where somebody else didn't. And uh, that's what I'm hoping that we're going to accomplish here throughout the week. So I'll highlight as we go on here, uh, well, let me just let me just highlight now in, in our schedule of Angelism 101. Um, I'm going to revisit 
just the basic principles of what church is all about. Uh, this afternoon, we're going to look at our GROW model. We're going to look at that from a standpoint of we're going to review just the, the, what we call the cycle of evangelism. But we're also going to review that from a standpoint of helping us. How do I say this without getting into it? I'm not going to. You're going to have to come this afternoon and you'll get all that. Okay, in the morning, Pastor Wes Peppers is going to be talking at 1045 about where to begin. Ellen White says many of God's people would work if they were just shown or taught where to begin. So I'm taking it from that. Okay, let's say you've never shared, you've never witnessed. How do you even get started with that? Where do you go? Who do you find? Is it just door-to-door -door ministry? Or is there some other way you can find people to witness to? And how do you witness to them? And what's a way you can witness to them without being preachy? And all that? We're going to talk about that tomorrow. We're going to give you practical ways that if you just came to tomorrow morning, you would have no excuse when you leave here. Oh, I shouldn't have said it that way because that leaves people out. It's like, if I come, I don't have an excuse. If I don't come... You still don't have an excuse because you're here and you had opportunity to hear this. But we'll be giving you practical ways, easy ways, dare I say, that you can begin to share your faith. And you may be like, I'm just not one of those door-to-door -door people. I just, I feel awkward about... Even saying that, even with that having been said, we're going to give you ways that you don't have to do all that invasive stuff and you can still begin in a very winning way to find somebody to begin sharing your faith with. Um... Uh, not just, not just, and we're going to talk about it, not just building the friendship, but how do you make that transition from the friendship into spiritual things? And again, very practical ways that we'll share that tomorrow. Tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to be talking about how to give really good Bible studies. Now, you may have heard about, you may have even come to my, my classes on, uh, one of my classes on Bible studies. Uh, this is going to be different, because they always are. Um, I'm, trying i've been trying i've been telling cameron you'll have to understand that every time i teach something i have i evaluate it afterwards and i ask myself was that part of it a big part of my evaluation is did it really translate into people giving bible studies because i don't want to just teach a class and be like okay that was interesting and go back on your merry way and never give us a bible study so i i try to make these things more and more practical and what i want to touch on in that training is i'm going to go over some basics but then i want well they may not be basic for you how many of you have given bible studies here before i just had we just had a, i just had a follow-up bible train tra we did a training at a church and then we followed we went back to that church i went back to that church camera wasn't able to go and i followed up on the people with bible studies that we challenged them to get i'm going to give you ways to get bible studies um, tomorrow Ways that if you do what we tell you in the class, you'll get a Bible study 95% of the time. Happens every time. We just did it, didn't we, Cameron? And so how many churches? I mean, keep going to churches and they don't believe us until they do it. And then it works and they get Bible studies. The problem is when they get the studies, they get all, what? like, I didn't know, I didn't believe it was going to happen. And now I guess you have a Bible study and what are you going to do with it? But what we've been running into a lot is this. People who get Bible studies, they start giving Bible studies, but they feel like they're not getting anywhere. The people in the studies aren't really making any changes aren't really and there's a reason for that and I really really became clear to me as I followed up with this church and I was asking and they were telling me how their studies were going so I'm going to give some of those practical tips on what's going to make the difference in you just giving bible studies and the person smiling and be friendly but them never making any decision to follow the truth and what the difference is in giving a bible study and somebody following the truth and it's not that complicated but it is kind of complicated <laughs> now you have to come here
I'm not going to tell you about it now. I'm going to tell you about it later. I'm just highlighting things. Evaluating your church for mission. We came up with a diagnostic tool that, that has worked. Now, it's not perfect, but I want to tell you, it's close, isn't it, Cameron? I mean, as far as what we wanted it to do, it's a tool that we have the churches fill out for themselves, and it has really helped the churches to see, in most cases, that they're not nearly as evangelistically focused as they thought they were. And when a person does not see a need for change, guess how much change is going to be? Not. Mm. But when, person, when people see a name, when churches see a need for change, now you have some ability to begin to move forward. This diagnostic tool, I'm going to share the tool itself and how it's used. And then in the afternoon, Cameron's going to tell you about what we did is we had the churches fill those tools out. And then we went and met with those church boards or church business meetings. And we went over the evaluations with them and learned some very good stuff and very practical stuff. And we're going to, Cameron's going to share that nuts and bolts. I'm going to give you the form and then he's going to share with you some of the effect of it and how you could use those things in helping your church to evaluate and move forward evangelistically. Uh, Cameron's going to talk about the church board on Wednesday, and I can imagine, in fact, he's titled it, <laughs> brother, this is the one they're all marking out. It's like, forget it, scratch that one, that's the day. Free day. Department, and if it's all, it's a free day. Let me say this, this you know, Wednesday is all about planning. Folks, I don't know how to say this any better now, I'm in the conference. Let me, let me describe conference work for you, okay? It's going to be exciting, okay? This is the conference office work. Go to the conference office, and you have a meeting. After that meeting, you have another meeting. When that meeting finishes, you have 15 minutes to grab something to eat before your next meeting, possibly, sometimes. Now, in between the meetings, the scheduled meetings, are the hallway meetings. Hey, do you have a minute? Hey, and then you do it. And then after the day of meetings is when you get that, uh, the secretary comes and says, uh, by the way, could we see you in our office for a minute? We, we've got something we want to go over. And since we're all here, which just translates to another meeting. So once your day of meetings, am I lying? No, he's preaching truth right now. <laughs> when you're done with the day of meetings, then you get to go home and decide when you're going to do all the things you talked about doing in the meetings. Now, those of you who sit on boards and meet it, you know how that type of thing goes. But I'm telling you that to say, on the one hand, I don't like the meetings. I don't like all the meetings. I'm telling you that because you can probably resonate with it. So I can tell you this. Without the meetings, we would go nowhere. We would go nowhere. And there are churches that just, yeah, I'm with you, Pastor. I don't like the meetings either. And we don't do them when we don't have them. But the reality is you have to come together and have meetings. And sometimes the meetings run longer. And sometimes you could accomplish in, 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 in half hour what it took you two hours to accomplish because everybody had to get their little word in and whatever. That's how it goes. But that's how things get done. Meetings and planning and filling out paperwork. There are a lot of churches that avoid it. And it's evident in how their church is run. It's just the reality. And so as much as it may be the stuff you're like, yeah, I don't like that stuff, all the more reason you should be tapping in on what we're doing here. We're talking about the church board. I'm going to tell you, we're going to share some How many are board members in your churches or have been board members? I'm going to guarantee we're going to talk about some stuff on the church board from the manual that says how the board should run that are going to, you're going to be like, 
Because it will not be like any board you've ever had. And yet it's how the Seventh-day Adventist manual says the church board should run. I'll just give you this little insight. Number one purpose of the church board is to discuss the mission of reaching the territory of the church. That's the number one thing that should consume your board meetings. Talk about how are we going to reach all the people in our community? Is that how the board meetings you attend go to? Uh, You go to a a, a pan out? Maybe. And if so, hallelujah. We're going to say most of the time it isn't how it works. We're going to talk about how to make those board meetings more effective to the mission of the church. We're going to talk about different planning you can do to help your church become more streamlined in soul winning and get away from a lot of this mechanical stuff that we've been doing. And really, you know, people say, oh, we're going to make our church more vibrant. We're going to liven up the worship service. I'm going to tell you what's going to make it vibrant is this kind of planning and meeting. The kind of boring stuff, allegedly boring, is really going to help your church take off. So I'm that that stuff on Wednesday, I, I can't say enough about it. Um, Thursday, Cameron, you want to say anything about how to disturb our monotony? He's going to disturb our monotony on, on Thursday morning. Uh, my brother Jim is going to talk about some of that department planning and planning for evangelism and all of that. And also Thursday afternoon, he's going to be talking about how to coordinate interests. Did you know the interest coordinator is an essential role in every church? Every church should have an interest coordinator, and it's a board position. We, as we travel around, what percentage of churches do we go to have interest coordinators? It's a very marginal number. But the interest coordinator is, is one of the most important roles. It, it's, the, it's the person who coordinates every contact that you have through your VBS, evangelistic meetings, cooking schools, supper clubs, keeps track of those people that have shown an interest in the truth. And with, with an interest coordinator who's functioning the right way, you could double or triple baptisms in your church. Or more, depending on your church and how many baptisms. If you have zero, you could, I don't know, you can't be quadruple, you can't do anything of zero. It'd be a big improvement. How do you change zero by multiplication? Anyway, start with addition, exactly. Um, and then we're going to talk about missing member ministry. This is something that recently, it's just been really impressed upon me. If there is no other ministry that you do, glow tracks or anything like that, if you're timid, most of our churches, and we'll share this when we get into details and the experiences we had, we're going to be sharing with you statistics of going into these churches and what have you, but most of our churches have an attending Sabbath worship membership. I'm not talking about prayer meeting members or t- attendance or Sabbath school, but Sabbath worship service attendance is generally half or less of book membership. Okay, so for, a, for let's just say, a 220-member church, which is not a huge church, uh, let's just say for a 100-member church, that's on the books, you've got 50 members who don't come on a regular basis. If you did a missing member ministry, and let's just say that you had three of those come back to church, and one of them stayed, it would be worth it. I'm telling you, we, got, but we can have better results, but these are people that... Well, we'll get into it this week. So we're talking about not just missing members and the benefit of it, but how you can actually organize and orchestrate a regular missing member ministry in your church. I'm going to tell you, it will, it will bring people back. Um, so we're going to do that. And then Friday, we've got a Q&A where we're, you, know, you may have questions from the week, and just practical questions from your own context of church. We're going to handle that on Friday morning. And then uh, my brother Jim's going to finish up with keys to successful public. We're heading into uh, Jesus on prophecy. Any public evangelism, again, there are certain things that I have to say this. I've been to evangel. I've had more experience recently 
um, because I've always preached my own series. So I've always been my, an event, my own event. I had one guy preach, uh, some of you know Chad Cruiser. He preached for me one year in a series and we worked together on that. But I've generally preached my own series. So I don't, I don't have a lot of experience going to other churches. I haven't. You know, if I've gone to other places, it's because I went and somebody invited me. Mission College invited me to go preach the series. I preached the series for somebody else. So to go to somebody else's evangelistic meeting, other than watching a net meeting or something like that, is something I hadn't done as much of. I've had more experience with that recently. And I can start to understand. You know, people have said, well, evangelism doesn't work anymore. And I've always been a staunch defender against that. Public evangelism does work. And I've defended public evangelism. But that defense is weakening with the way I've seen public evangelism run sometimes. Some evangelists come, they, I've sat in a meeting and the guy sounds like a used car salesman because he learned that that quippy style was supposed to get people. And I'm just, I, and so I'm, there are tips. And I'm, and I'm seeing that, and here's, here's why I'm saying it and why we're going to go into this on Friday. There are things we do in, a public, in public evangelism that will kill whatever we're trying to accomplish. Your meeting isn't going to be a success. You're not going to have the baptisms. You're not going to have the interest to follow up with. And then afterwards, and this is why I'm saying it, this is what happens afterwards, because I work in this kind of department, is people will say, well, our church isn't going to do that anymore because it just doesn't work. And I know why it's not working, and it's not because it's public evangelism, we scare the people with the beast, it's because your meeting was so sloppy and your speaker didn't know what he was doing. There are things that we can address that will help your success, and your success in public evangelism helps our success because you stay positive about it and you continue to support. Versus when Elder Mitchell gets up and says, our offering today is for public evangelism. What do you think is going to happen to the churches who said our meeting was a bomb? Yeah, I'm going to give to that. Forget about it. And the offerings go down, and we can't do as much public evangelism. So... It's important that you understand what makes for good public evangelism. Not all public evangelism is good. <laughs> and so we're going to give you the tips as to what to make. So anyway, that's a layout of what we're doing this week. It's going to be good stuff. And uh, I, I don't know, like I said, I hope you can, you can be here for the bulk of that. Um, and if you know people that, hey, I've been talking to some people in my church, and this is it, tell them about it and bring them in. You've got the schedule for the week. We'll have more schedules for those who come in throughout the week. So what I want to do is we have, well, I'm just going to have you do a little stand up and stretch break. Okay, that was a, a stretch break. So we're going, to, we're going to dive into the Bible here for a moment. And uh, I'm going to invite you to sit down if you would. And I would like to pray before we do this. Somebody had asked me during the break, about what we train on when we come to the churches? It's a very good question. We actually train on what you need training on. So we've had churches say, we really want to get our church moving on giving Bible studies. So we train on that. We've had people say, our people don't even, they're afraid to give Bible studies. We need the basics on just how they can start sharing with their neighbors. Okay, we'll train on that. Uh, we've got people say, hey, we want some training on how to make our Sabbath school more lively. We'll train on that. Granted that when we come in for a weekend, I'll be honest with you, let me just tell you this. Weekend trainings are not at all my favorite thing to do. This is how weekend training usually works. You start Friday night, all the saints are totally dead tired Friday night. Okay, 
So half of them come out and miss Friday night's presentation. Uh, uh, half of them come out and the other half miss Friday night's presentation. The Sabbath worship presentations, we do a Sabbath school oftentimes and then the worship hour, and those are well attended. And then afternoon trickles off again. And what you end up doing, because there's so much to cover and cram into the weekend, you have Sabbath school, then you do the sermon, and then you do two or three afternoon trainings and the saints afterwards, your eyes are rolled back into their heads. They're like having convulsions. And you just, it's not ideal. It's a lot of sitting. It's just we work with what we have. Now, we did do a training that I thought went pretty well. I lost camera. I was going to give feedback on this. We talked about it. But we did a training in the Cadillac Church where we went in on Sabbath and we preached to get ready for the, and then we, we came Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and Thursday night. And we did like an hour and a half, hour and a half or two hours. It wasn't more than two a night. It could have been six to eight or six to eight or, or <laughs> six thirty to eight or something like that. And the church planned to, to, to have a supper for the members who came to that anyway. I think that they were better able to assimilate in that training. So we work with the church, we, but we'll work with whatever the church, you know, you may be in a church like, I know that if they're only going to come out on the weekend, that's fine, so we do that. I just, you need to know that it makes these long Sabbaths and um, it's not as ideal, but, you know, we, that's still how it works. And we'll do trainings on the different things. If church tells us this is what our need is, we'll try to streamline it that way. Okay, let's, we don't have a whole lot of time here. So I want to go to Matthew 28. This is where we find the great gospel commission. Incidentally, you'll find this in every one of the gospels. Before we read it, I'm going to pray. So let's go to, let's uh, bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the spirit of truth to lead us into truth, I pray for his guidance right now that you would help us not just to understand this passage, but understand how it applies to those of us in this room today. But we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you, most of you are familiar with the Great Commission, I would hope anyway. Uh, it's given in all four Gospels in different ways. I like to tell people it's the parting words of Jesus. And when a person speaks parting words, parting words are generally well thought out. Um, it says something to us about the burden of Jesus' heart. The biggest burden of Jesus' heart was that his people that were left on the earth after he ascended to heaven would continue his work in seeking and saving the lost. We find it in Matthew 28. Jesus says in verse 18, uh, the Bible says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We heard this highlighted in a message the other day. Go, therefore, and what? Make disciples, it says in the New King James, of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So here Jesus entrusts his church with that commission to go and make disciples of all nations. We're going to talk about that a little more fully uh, this week as well, in fact, this afternoon. Now, I want you to go to the gospel, uh, not the gospel, but to the book of Acts, and you'll see Jesus repeating this commission. Acts chapter 1, not in those words, but you'll get the same concept. Acts chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. 
Jesus, oh, I got to start in verse 6. The Bible says, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples are still waiting for this earthly kingdom, right? And Jesus says, verse 7, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put into, I'm sorry, put in his own authority, but you shall receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. When does the Holy Spirit come upon a believer? When you're baptized, you receive the Spirit, right? So if you're a baptized church member, you've received the Spirit. What for? Keep reading. The Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be what? Witnesses to me in Jerusalem. That's where you live. And in all Judea and Samaria, that's surrounding territory, and to the end of the earth, that leaves no place out. So Jesus, right before, right after this, he ascends to heaven. So again, his parting words, he's reminding his disciples, listen, you've got a work to do. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. Now I want you to tarry at Jerusalem, but when that happens, Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to receive power and you're going to be witnesses for me. That is no different for us today. When the Holy Spirit comes upon the people of God, it is so that we can be witnesses for him. Somebody was asking me in our, uh, in our manual logo, you'll notice that I used the text Mark 1.17 where Jesus says, come unto me, and I will make you become, I'm sorry, he says, yeah, I will make you become fishers of men. And they said, oh, you use that because that's your name, right? And you sneak your name in there, just like you sneak your name in here, and I put it all over, you know, surreptitiously. I throw it into these places. No, that's not why I chose uh, the, the Mark's version of that. The reason I like Mark's version is instead of like Matthew, where he says, I will make you fishers of men. Mark says, I will make you become fishers of men. And when I read that word become, become implies that I'm going to make you something you weren't before. Amen. And so for the person who says, you know, I just, I just don't know if I have the ability. I don't know if I have the skill. I don't know if I have the makeup to be a witness. Don't worry. Jesus can make you become what you weren't. Amen. And this is what he says. The Spirit of God is going to come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses. And that comes to you and me too. Now, I want you to take that, this concept that what they heard. I want you to go to Pentecost. I want you to go to the upper room experience. How many of you are familiar with Pentecost, the story? And the disciples, what happened on Pentecost? Outpouring of the what? Holy Spirit. And what happened as a result of that day? 3,000 were baptized in a day. Incidentally, the numbers in the Bible and those accounts were the men not counting the women and children. So we just know 3,000 men were baptized in a day. After a little bit of time, that number increased to 5,000. Again, men, not counting women and children. So you got massive growth in the church. Now, I, what did they do before Pentecost? They prayed for how long? Ten days, where? In the upper room, okay. How many of you are familiar with what I'm talking about? Praying the ten days in the upper room. Now, here's what I want you to think about. Do you think they were praying in earnest? You know, or was it just a kind of a, oh, well, okay, we got to pray? Or do you think they really were heartfelt about it? What do you think it was that drove them to their knees in prayer? Let me, let me, before I ask that, let me ask you, have you ever been driven to prayer? I mean, it's not like devotional time where you get up and you have I'm hoping that you have time you dedicate to the Lord every day, but I'm talking about those times where you are driven to prayer. It's like there's devotional time, but then, man, I've got to pray now for whatever. What drives you to prayer? 
Generally, it's a crisis or a need. I want you to think about that. Now, Jesus did tell them to tarry in Jerusalem. But what do you think led them to prayer in the upper room? I'm going to tell you what I think led them to prayer in the upper room. They had just been told by Jesus that it was their responsibility, now the 11 of them, well, and they had the, went the Matthias thing, that they had to reach the entire world with the gospel, that it was their job. Is that a little bit overwhelming? Yeah. I mean, if I told you, let's forget the world. You got to leave here and you got to go back to your church and you got to get your church on fire. You do. Would that be overwhelming to you? Maybe you're like, hey, our church is on fire. Hallelujah. I know a lot of our churches are not as on fire as it could be. Okay, they were told you've got to reach the world with the gospel. I believe that it's because they personally accepted that responsibility. Not they just heard what Jesus said. They accepted that responsibility personally. Not like, okay, it's our job. No, it's my job. How am I going to do that? How am I going to reach the world? How am I going to reach the world? And I believe that's what drove them to their knees in prayer. And I'm saying that because I believe that we as a church have not accepted that responsibility yet. In, as individuals, I should say, in the church. I believe that if Seventh-day Adventist church members really accepted that the people in their neighborhood would be saved or lost, dependent on their own personal witness, it would change something. And while that's not entirely the case, it's certainly part of the case. So the early church, what drove them, I just what I want you to understand is what drove everything was the sense of mission. The believing that this was their mission. And I believe that the same thing has to be the case today. We as Seventh-day Adventists cannot lose that reality that proclaiming the gospel to the world is our mission. And folks, don't think that the evangelical churches are doing it too. And I'm not trying to knock evangelical churches, but here I'm going to say, well, you know, you got other people. There are great preachers like Billy Graham, etc. Folks, the, the gospel, we are told the gospel is the divine remedy for sin. We're told in scripture that sin is breaking God's law. The evangelical churches don't believe there's anything wrong with breaking God's law. They say God's law is done away with. What kind of sense does a remedy for breaking the law make to people who don't believe in the law. Yeah. You just can't preach the gospel in its fullness like you can as a Seventh-day Adventist. Don't think somebody else can do our work for us. Let alone the prophetic pieces of that message that prepare the world for the coming of Jesus Christ. This sense of mission drove the early church. Our mission is why we're here. Our mission is why our churches exist. The reason we have board meetings, the reason we discuss painting the church and carpet in the church and all that should all be in the context of reaching the world with the gospel. You still have to upkeep your church. Yeah, you're going to have a board meeting and talk about carpet. I'm not saying that's an evil thing to do, but it needs to be in the greater context of the gospel commission, of the mission of the church. Now, this drove those early disciples. I was uh, preaching recently on John chapter 6, and it was fascinating to me where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And I hadn't caught this before, but one of the things he does in John chapter 6 is he goes to Philip. Now, they're near the region of Bethsaida, 
where Philip was from. So Jesus, and the Bible says he was testing Philip when he did this. But Jesus goes to Philip and he says, you got the fine house. He was like, so hey, Philip, where can we buy bread for these people? And it, it, you know, it, it hit me. Of course, again, it said Jesus was testing Philip. And I was thinking about that. Philip was probably never in that mental space before. Because that was Jesus' job, right? What do you mean, where are we going to buy bread? Master, you know, right? It, what Jesus was doing is he was putting Philip in the driver's seat, having him have to even think in a different way to say, if I had to take care of this problem, how would I do it? I don't know. That, wow, this is an incredible problem. And I think Jesus wanted him to see that so he would understand the incredible nature of the solution to the problem. I think it would do well for a lot of Seventh-day Adventists to be put in that driver's seat. If your church, if the, if the success of your local church in mission, in winning souls, in presenting a Christ-like atmosphere was your sole responsibility, would it change anything that you're currently doing? My point is that mission drove this early church. And so we go to the baptism of 3,000 a day. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. You, you may have heard me speak on this, but I've spoken on this before if you have come to some trainings. Um, either way, it's a good refresher. I want you to think for a minute. I'm going to tell you I don't know many Adventist churches that are 3,000-member churches. Our big churches in Michigan are 500-member churches, besides Berrien. What's, what's Village Church? Do you know the membership there? About 900,000, right? So 3,000 is a pretty sizable number. Okay, you baptize 3,000 in a day. How are you feeling about that? Now, initially, most people, hallelujah. No, not, not initially. I mean, hallelujah, praise the Lord. But if you're in any kind of leadership position, now you start factoring in logistics of the whole thing. Our church doesn't hold 3,000 people. Right? Village wouldn't hold 3,000 people. Now you need a new building. I mean, we could talk about parking, but forget parking. There's a new building. And the building has enough room. How many Sabbath schools do you have to have with 3,000 members? You understand? And that's an addition of 3,000. It became 5,000 within a short period of time. I mean, phenomenal growth. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Now, as this happened, the disciples themselves were perplexed with what to do. If you go on through the book of Acts, you find in chapter 6 that the, the, the uh, apostles ended up having to appoint deacons because as the church began to grow, they found themselves doing more of the um, practical, uh, I don't want to say manual labor, but the, 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 that practical work of, of trying to minister to the needs of members that others could have done. And what was happening is the gospel wasn't being preached as much as it was in, at least in the capacity they did, because they were getting tied up with waiting tables, I think the scripture says. So they appointed deacons to do the job so they could continue growing, and the church did continue growing. But you, this is the interesting thing about it. This is the point that I, I want to make as we're just thinking about this this morning. In the early church, mission drove administration. Administration didn't drive mission. You weren't waiting for the conference leaders or even the pastor to say, okay, now this is what we're going to do and this is what we need to do. 
The administration, you didn't even have the layers of administration yet in the, in the early Christian church. They weren't there yet because they didn't need to be there yet. It was as the church grew that they appointed leaders. And as they grew more, they appointed leaders. And the leadership structure followed growth. But today, we are waiting for leadership to tell us how to grow. Do you understand what I'm saying? We have totally flipped the model. And then we scratch our heads and wonder why we're not growing. <laughs> My sister's asking how we can organize and stuff and the pastors are tied up with other things. You tell me, how did it happen in the early church? The pastor, isn't the pastor supposed to feed the sheep in the church so they can be fed to go out to get... Okay, so my, my sister again says, isn't the pastor supposed to feed the, pe the sheep in the church? Yes, and let me tell you how. And this is what we're going to be talking about this week. You're, and we're going to look at this from a historical standpoint. We're, we're looking at it in Scripture here. If we follow through the church in Scripture, which we're going to continue to do here, and I need to do them briefly, you're going to see that the pastor in the early church was a trainer, not a hoverer. He trained the members. He trained the elders. When Paul went somewhere, he would raise up a church and he would stay for a year, a year and a half, sometimes longer. But in that time, he established leaders that when he left, anyway, we're getting into, we're going to get into that. But let me continue. So you, I just want you to understand that in this early model, what we see is that the growth is driving administration. Now, we ran into a problem in Acts chapter 8. If you come to Acts chapter 8, what happens is when the church grows, church members become satisfied with a level of growth. In fact, I don't know if you're aware of this, but if a church, let's say your church, I don't know, it doesn't matter how many it seats, but if your church building has reached 80% of its capacity, it generally will refuse to grow. it will generally <laughs> cease to grow because members see that your church is full. And so we feel like our mission is accomplished. That, unfortunately, is, is one of the results of that. We see that in the book of Acts. The church had become satisfied with the growth that it had, and they were in danger of not growing. And so God allowed persecution to come upon the church. We read it in Acts chapter 1, 8, verse 1. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. The Bible says, speaking of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all what? Scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except who? We're going to come back to that. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were what? Scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Now, preaching, you have to understand that preaching, the sense that that's used in the original Greek language, is not a, it could be speaking of preaching from a pulpit. But it also and more often is referring to just verbally communicating. In other words, I could be talking to my brother and my sisters here about uh, uh, the gospel, and that's preaching in this sense. It's not saying that those scattered were all going and getting pulpits and reserving a building somewhere where they could hold some seminar. It's saying that they went and verbally communicated the gospel. And notice who did it is those who were scattered. Why were they scattered? Because of persecution. Why did God allow the persecution? Because they became self-satisfied. So God stirred things up, 
and spread out, spread out the church. I have a pastor here. He told me his grandfather has a saying that Adventists are like manure. You ever hear this one? You pile them together, they start to stink. You spread them out and they do a lot of good. So God spread out the early church. He scattered them. And it says, notice, everyone who was scattered, they went everywhere preaching the word. But if you go back to, to verse 1, who was it that wasn't scattered? Everybody was scattered except who? The apostles. And for the longest time, I'd read Acts chapter 8, or I have my, my mindset, rather, of the early church was, it was the apostles that did all the preaching. Not so. Every member was active in sharing the gospel. They were spread out and the church grew. And when the church became stifled, God allowed it to be stirred up and they went out again and it grew. And if we continue to follow it, I'm going to finish up with, uh, oh, two verses. First one is 1 Thessalonians chapter, no, 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 I'll end with that one. Acts chapter 11. If we go a little bit further, now notice the setting where we were just reading. The setting where we were just reading was just after the martyrdom of who? Stephen. Okay, so we're going to go down. We go through the house of Cornelius experience and all that in the book of Acts. Then we come to Acts 11, verse 19, and we pick up on, you know, at this point we're like, hey, whatever happened to those guys who went and scattered everywhere? Here's what happens. Acts 11, verse 19. The Bible says, now those who were what? Scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen. So we're clear, it's that group that we were just reading about traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. At the point in time, that's when Christ said, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But some of them were men of, from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, those are just Greek-speaking Jews, preaching the Lord Jesus, notice verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a what? A great number believed and turned to the Lord. The news of these things came to the ears of the church where? In Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Why did the church at Jerusalem? Who was at Jerusalem? The apostles. apostles. Why did they send out Barnabas? To check up on what? The growth that was happening by the lay members. Right? Barnabas wasn't going out. It's like, Barnabas, go preach a meeting and try to grow that church. The church was growing so much. It's like, hey, Barnabas, go check out what's happening. Are you following? So Barnabas goes out. The Bible says in verse um, 23, when he came and had seen the grace of God, <laughs> he was glad. What an understatement. I mean, Cameron, wouldn't that be great? We're not, we're not, in, no, it's not go out and train the churches. You got to go out. This church is growing and they need some help in adding whatever levels of structure and administration because they're growing so fast. Anyway, that's where Barnabas was there to help them in their growth. It says he was a good man, verse 24, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Still, the growth continues. Verse 25, then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. Right? He's going to go and say, hey, Paul, look what's going on in... And notice, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. So they're establishing leadership there, right? The church has grown. The people have accepted Christ. Now they need some structured leadership and the apostles are helping with the church members. And it says, and the disciples were first called what? 
Christians in Antioch. Christian was not a name they called themselves. It was a name that was bestowed on them because what they were doing so modeled the work of Christ. Now, folks, this, you'll find that this is what we see in the early church. You'll find this same thing in the early Adventist church. But you will not see it in the church today where most of the church members are out witnessing and sharing the faith and the church is growing and the conference just exists to help the churches in their growth. Now it's like, when's the conference going to send somebody to help us? We're about to close our doors. Something's wrong with that. Something's drastically wrong. And I'm going to tell you, if we continue in that mindset, we're going to die. Plain and simple. One more text I want to look at. And I'm sorry, we're out of time, but we will be back this afternoon and all week with some really good practical ways that we can start getting back to this model. But I want to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. Now, in context of what we've been reading, after 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians sorry, chapter 1, verse 8. I start talking faster when I'm running out of time, and it doesn't really help anything, but... You guys are like, what did he say in that last? But notice what, he, what the apostle says in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. Speaking to the church in Thessalonica, he says, For from who? Speaking of the church, not the apostles. From you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith toward God has gone out so that we, who's we? The apostles do not need to what? Say anything. Very different picture from what we have today. And brothers and sisters, the Lord is trying to lead us back to the model he gave us, the one that works, the only one that works, the thing we see in Scripture. So we're going to be talking this throughout the week about practical ways we can get back there. Uh, thank you for enduring here this morning. And uh, I hope that this works into your schedule through the week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful to be alive in such a time as this. Lord, everyone in this room has the ability to be an agent of change where they are. And I pray throughout this camp meeting that you will use this and other seminars to help them help their churches grow. Lord, help us not to be dependent on man, but to realize that you have empowered each of us to grow your work and further your cause in this earth and hasten the coming of Jesus. Bless us to this end, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.